And then you don't fall into some of those ego traps as easily. And there are 10 different ego traps. Once upon a time, there were tens of thousands of makers struggling. Every day they built for hours and hours, but didn't ship and didn't earn enough income. One day, the No Code Wealth podcast came to help them find the way. Because of this, makers became founders and have clarity out of confusion. Because of this, founders can have the life they deserve. Clarity is what I'm really all about. And this journey has been full of ups and downs for me. Hello, my name is Abdulaziz and from being a poor boy born to a single mother in North Africa with no money, no connections, only hard work, persistence and even more hard work to a European Ivy League business graduate and an expert on seven different psychological therapies with a great corporate job. Still, I've lost everything twice, but I refuse to give up. So now I'm rebuilding my life one more time, 1% a day. On this podcast, I'm privileged and honored to interview hundreds of amazing people from members of the Forbes Technology Council, Google executives, Amazon, Microsoft, LinkedIn C-suite executives to Fortune 100 to Financial Times reporters and people from Harvard University, Cambridge, Stanford, even from the Vatican Church, congressional candidates and decorated veterans, or just beginners wishing to make a difference in this world. All are welcome here. And thank you all so much for the support. After all this hard work, this podcast is now ranking highly on Apple in the entrepreneurship category, top 200 in San Francisco, top 100 in Australia, top 100 in Singapore, top 60 in Germany, top 50 in Canada, top 50 in the United Kingdom, and top in many other places. This podcast is really about having clarity conversations, which is what I am known for. Clarity of where you are now, clarity on the right next step to take, clarity out of confusion and hesitation, and clarity of business whenever that might be necessary. So let's begin. My guest today is Casey Fenton. From beginning as a legislative aide at the Alaska State House of Representatives to being the original co-founder and founding chairman of the board at Couchsurfing International and now the CEO and founder at Upstock, Casey speaks extensively on trust, collaboration, and hacking human ego to produce enhanced cooperation. He has spoken at Stanford Business School and TEDx Bologna, as well as keynoted at Slush, Startup Grind, DLD, Startup Extreme, and dozens more events. Upstock allows teams of all sizes to easily issue and manage worker equity. With Upstock, business owners can set up a worker equity system in minutes instead of months at a price point up to 40x more affordable than lawyers. 
sounds cool. And Casey, how are you today? Wow, that's great. A great intro, Abdulaziz. I appreciate that. Um, I am having a great day. I'm here in Alaska with my wife, and we are um, just doing my work and getting ready to go on a hike later. And I'm really excited to talk with you because, like you said, you like to dig deep into different topics and really get to the heart of the matter. So um, I couldn't be more thrilled to be here on the show with you. This is where I wouldn't rather be anywhere else in the world right now. Thank you so much. And so I would like to begin with something which is my favorite question <laughs> currently, and is this. These days, this period, what seems to be something new or something deeper that you seem to be thinking about a lot because it demands your attention or it's time to change it or it's the right time to move on to this next level in your life? Great question. Uh, I think right now, what's really a lot, you know, really present, really prevalent in my mind, kind of going through my mind when I'm trying to lay in bed at night and just trying to get to sleep and trying to think about, um, you know, trying to think about this world. And I just keep coming back to this idea of cooperation. I mean, I've always been about cooperation in my life, but now I'm really looking at all the different forces, all of the things coming together and, and trying to think, how can this world cooperate and how can we overcome the real big challenges? Or are we, we going to go splat? You know, is this a, is this a good world and are we going to make it or not? So it's, uh, I think that's kind of the, 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 biggest, the biggest topic on my mind. And then the, the related topic is how, how can I add to the cooperation? How can I up the cooperation quotient, uh, so to speak, and, and make sure that we can all succeed together? Thank you. It reminds me of the Einstein thing where he said the most important question for humanity is the answer to um, is this world a friendly place and you said you know whether the world will move on into more cooperation or will splash <laughs> together <laughs> and so okay what is stopping cooperation well, I think uh, there's plenty of things that are stopping cooperation, but one of the things that's really on my mind when I'm thinking about that is um, human ego and human identity. And there is um, kind of built into us, there's this desire to cooperate, but there's also some challenges regarding the way that human ego or the, the, the biological function of human ego, how it is built and how it expresses itself and how it makes people not necessarily want to cooperate um, how they want to maybe look good, avoid looking bad, you know, get more for themselves at the cost of others. So this is kind of, you know, really on my mind and I'm seeing evidence of it everywhere. And, you know, maybe it's confirmation bias because I'm writing a book upon about such a topic right now with my wife. Uh, but it, it seems to be real uh, as, a, you know, just a huge factor. I mean, we've got all kinds of problems in the world, but this one seems to kind of um, be a part of all of the problems and, and uh, affect all of the different issues that we're going through. Thank you. So our world is at a critical junction and we need cooperation to survive basically. But what is standing in the way or at least a big thing is the human ego, how it's built and people trying to look good or whatever that might stop them from cooperating. Is this correct? That's absolutely correct. There's you know, there's a lot to it, of course, but uh, that I think you've done a great job of summing it up. Thank you. And you mentioned something interesting. You said how the ego is built, and that word will not be used in that context by any person. So you said it in a way that is more unique. So how is the ego built? 
Yeah, so I think if you ask different people, you'll get different answers on this. If you walk down the street and ask people, oh, well, how does your ego function? You'll probably just get all kinds of random answers. But I think that the way that the ego functions is it's basically something trying to get our needs met. And that could mean anything from our most basic of needs like air, food, oxygen, you know, social connection. But then as you kind of get higher up Maslow's hierarchy, so to speak, and out of Maslow's basement, um, it, it, you have the needs of, uh, you know, t- personal you, know, you have this kind of like, how, how do I come across to other people, self-esteem related, and maybe eventually, um, you know, you have these, these things or self-actualization. But I guess mostly where, where I'm focused, and especially where this book we're writing is focused, is more on the, the software elements of, you know, the things you can solve with software, with information. A lot of the basic needs, you, you have to move molecules from here over to there, whether it's food or water or, or even human connection in many ways, although that can be done more and more online these days. But the idea is that, that with human ego, it's all software. It's all information-based. It's all, what do I think about you? What do, you, what do I imagine you're thinking about me? And so on. So this is, um, this is, this is uh, where, where, where when, I, when I talk about human ego and how it functions, this is where we're focusing the book a bit. And when we get a little bit back to that question of how does it function, I, there's a whole bunch of pieces to it. Uh, one of the major prevalent pieces is something I like to call uh, ego debt or a, almost like an ego ledger where we have in inputs coming into uh, into our body, you know, inputs and outputs, of course. And, you know, I'm a computer programmer so by trades. So I t- tend to think in these kinds of systems. Uh, we have these inputs that are coming in and we can make meaning of them. The meaning could be something positive or negative. It could mean something about me, about something about other people. And the tendency is to... Um, want to uh, create answers that make me feel good, but also maybe don't get me closer to reality at the same time. Maybe you're getting a little bit further away from the average reality everyone else is experiencing. So that's just one kind of ego trap you could you could say. The book is kind of filled with these ego traps and then the ego hacks to overcome the ego traps. So the human ego is functioning such that we have a tendency to fall into these ego traps based on the, the biological way in which it functions. Uh, you know, we're, we've got these feedback ratios in the world. And if we go too low, if the feedback ratio is too negative with those people around us in our environment, we tend to want to, um, you know, rationalize why those other people are wrong and we're okay. And if the, if the feedback ratio goes too high, things start to feel meaningless. So there's some, there's somewhere in the middle that's a good healthy feedback ratio. Some people say it's like five to one, five positive to one negative. Some research out there has said that. Everybody's different. Every culture is different. But when you can really take a look at the feedback ratio and make sure you're having a healthy feedback ratio, then people can actually hear each other, especially when they're trying to talk about challenging topics. Um, And then you don't fall into some of those ego traps as easily. And there are, you know, in the book, we outline about 10 different ego traps. Thank you so much. And I will play the devil's advocate a little bit. So I have two questions that are related to that. If, okay, you spoke about uh, confirmation bias, and Mm -hmm. that is one of the cognitive biases. Well, if Kane Mann uh, and many of the people who won Nobel Prizes and experts on cognitive biases still say Mm -hmm. that until this day, they fall into them frequently, although they're the foremost experts on them. How is it that just some information or additional information can 
make us avoid ego traps. If we weren't even thinking about it in a Buddhist way, it takes people like 40 years in order to liberate themselves from that, like uh, looking at the wall and meditating 24 hours. So how can some more or information, how can Mm -hmm. it be the solution to something that is ingrained into the psyche that deep? Of course. Brilliant, brilliant question. And to answer that, I would say this. I would say that there are better and maybe worse strategies for reprogramming ourselves. Yes, we have confirmation bias. Yes, I like to call them almost like ego snowballs, like whatever our identity is we've already identified with when we're in the world. And, we, you know, we have these big identities that we've learned over time that we've had reinforced that we've reinforced ourselves and that our friends and the people around us and our culture reinforce in us. Now, if, you know, if you're trying to overcome these large snowballs of ego, let's call them, because they're rolling downhill, picking up more material all the time, that can be challenging. I think that's what you're getting at. Uh, But how do you reprogram these things? Well, once you understand how the ego functions, it makes it a lot easier. It's easier to hack a system that you understand, right? So, you know, we, we, in the book we're talking, we're trying to show the research and show how, you know, we become what other people say we are for social cohesion, like we have to be because about, you know, somewhere around 92% of people are pretty cooperative. They have enough enough oxytocin running around in their bloodstream and they really want, they care about what other people think. And, um, and that's a good thing because the more we care about what other people think, the more cohesive we have a society. And so one of the things we talk about in the book is that it's, um, it's that it, it, we become what other people say we are, or what we imagine that they, they want us to be for social cohesion. So that goes to, to follow that if we can figure out how we were programmed and understand that, if we can figure out who we'd like to be, we can also get our friends to help us program ourselves in that direction and we can get there faster. So there's, again, there's like strategies that are not very good at, at reprogramming identity and other strategies that are much better at reprogramming identity. There's certain words to, that are better to use and certain words that are not as good. For instance, a word that's better would be, and you can you, you can look at Carol Dweck's examples. She has some great ego hacks like on, around growth mindset. That's one of the best, one of the better ego hacks out there is Carol Dweck's, you know, making sure that you're speaking in growth language. Uh, in that case, uh, you would talk about, you know, the, the identity that you have that you want to get away from, right, that you want to put down and suppress. Talk about that as being in the past, but if you have an identity that you'd like to move toward, let's talk about how you're becoming that. Or what is the examples of, of and evidence of, of you being that already? Because whatever your identity is, you have that confirmation bias that is going to reinforce it. So let's make sure that you're programmed with the identities that you like to reinforce and have the right language to suppress the identities that you would not like to have expressed. I don't know if that if it helps give a little more color to your question and answer. Thank you. I have like a million questions, but okay. How is that different from affirmations? And people have developed something called affirmations, which is because anytime you say to yourself, like, I am so great, or I am so smart, or I am so rich, there is an inner resistant voice that criticizes that. And therefore, someone evolved it into asking a question, why am I so rich or whatever, so that your brain will look for answers instead of criticizing it. Well, the question is how, like, because the, the, the fundamental assumption there is that humans can program themselves. And they did a lot of studies, there are even books about it, that people who have heart conditions, for example, from smoking or getting their illness to a critical level, 
will still kill themselves by not stopping that. Even like they will stop maybe for three months or four, but they will die from returning to that much more like 92% or whatever than the people who stop because the momentum of the identity, if we might say it mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. way, is moving. It's like a huge boulder and you're right. using sand like uh, grains <laughs> trying yeah. to stop a boulder with them. So that idea of us programming ourselves, I got a hint <laughs> that you're using like the peer pressure or the environment, which is in systems theory, which is that when people say things about you, then it's mm-hmm. something stronger than uh, you yeah. saying it to yourself. If exactly. I understood, that's what you said. Your friends come and they will program you. But this is my question. What brought you to the belief that actually people can reprogram themselves? If Because the assumption is you said you're a computer programmer. So mm-hmm. it's a computer, which means you just erase and change. But this mm-hmm. is not like that. This is like a train going at a thousand miles per hour. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to reprogram it. But it's not exactly because the momentum of old habits, old ways Mm -hmm. of beings, whatever it is, is ingrained. So can you comment on this, please? A hundred percent. So I think, like you said, there's a boulder. You have a a, you're rolling a boulder or snowball or something downhill. You have that momentum. You have all these neurons in your in your brain and your whole body and everything that's kind of like you said, has a lot of momentum in one direction. This, I don't think it's possible to very easily erase any of your, your existing programming. I think all you can do is create more programming and try to um, have your body uh, choose that or fire down those neurons uh, as a precedence. You know, it's like you want to, and and that takes a lot. That can that can take a, that can take a, a whole that can take a whole bunch of work to do that. Um, it's not it's not so easy. It's not as easy as having your friend just having your friends say some magic words at all. I mean, the deeper the programming, the harder the work generally is to to um, to change it to replace it let's say, or to, and not that you can delete it again, it's that you want to create other um, ego snowballs, I like to call them, that start rolling, you know, and you can give somebody this gift by saying, I see you as somebody who really doesn't want to smoke. I see you as somebody who's, oh my God, look at the evidence just the other day, you, you weren't smoking and you went for a run and you, you know, all of these things that are evidence of somebody not doing that as, as, as a friend might do if they see this kind of evidence. And that starts to build, that's just either see, start that, little ego snowball and you might even ask that person like you said why do you think that is and then they start inventing and in, in, in their mind and start to own the identity more and more of that identity of why they're not smoking or why they're moving toward one identity and maybe not another which is another you know powerful um, ego hack i think that's a, a great uh, byron katie was one that really pushed that one um in her work uh that's she's done great work in 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 uh, creating the work I've been very impressed by her her work there. Um, yeah, so there's there's really uh, there's all kinds of ways in which you can try to create these larger snowballs. But again, you're not erasing old ones. You're just trying to make the new snowballs larger, uh, and so that they become more naturally um, expressed, and the other ones are more likely to not be expressed. Does that make sense? Yes, and I will go to another uh, thing you mentioned before. You said something. You said that these ego traps or whatever, they make us deviate from the reality that is agreed upon or for the by most people or the average person, etc. right? That is one of the ego traps, yes. I, I call it optimizing for what feels good over what's real. Okay. 
this is a huge can of worms, but even if you look in the philosophy of science and you said that there are the data that comes to us and we use it as instruments in order to judge how to react in an ego way and all mm -hmm. that. Actually, in many ways, there is no reality and there is not even like a lot of yes. agreed upon reality. There is like eight billion realities because each person in the yeah. world is living in their reality and they believe nobody else is everybody else is crazy mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't so first two things one yeah. when you say to people that agreed upon reality the selfish ego needs to come because the only way they will agree to an agreed upon reality is for practical reasons but if you ask them deep down the truth will be well I believe in my reality and everybody else is wrong. That's mm -hmm. what will come out. Right, and course. the second, you said the data comes. Well, I remember um, uh, the rational emotive behavioral therapy, which is uh, Dr. Albert Ellis. He was uh, speaking about some studies he did that even when parents are perfect, like mm -hmm. amazing, still kids will find ways to mess themselves up. <laughs> That's what mm -hmm. he said. Mm -hmm. Like if the father or the mother is like on the phone, and then uh, the daughter says, oh, daddy, or whatever. He's like, one second, sweetie. She will think, my God, uh, he loves the phone more than me, so I'm less mm -hmm. than the phone, and therefore, right. you, know, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Which means that anything coming, there is not really a standardized way to think about it, about how the data will translate into ego uh, reaction mm -hmm. or ego trap or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Which means, well, what is your comment on these two things? The agreed upon reality, that's not really yeah, something yeah. that would exist in a non-ego place. If you yeah. take off the ego, there is no agreed yeah. reality because nobody has an incentive to agree to an agreed reality. And the second, mm -hmm. which is that actually the what comes is not really the same for each person, whatever data that is coming. Mm -hmm. We're just aggregating a lot, but it's like saying all models are totally wrong, but they're very useful. Right, yeah, so I 100% agree um, that this, you can't have a uh, perfect reality. I mean, it's so subjective. Like you said, there's you know, billions of realities, right? But at some point when you're coming, you're trying to live your life and you're trying to um, you know, move through it, interact with other people and interact with the environment around you, there are going to be some things that most, but that more people will generally agree on. Now, if you're, um, you know, and science is a good example. Uh, a lot of, you know, these, there's lots of, you know, science out there that people generally agree on. And if you agree with the gravity works in a certain way, and it's, you know, maybe different people have different ideas about it, but if you, you don't want to go so far off in your, um, stories about and, 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 um, understanding about how that works. I mean, that gravity is a very simple example, but I think more complex examples and more common examples would be, you know, you're in a social setting and there's a whole bunch of people trying to make sense of each other. And there are a whole bunch of people trying to, you know, tell stories that, um, either could make themselves look good and avoid looking bad. You could have all kinds of different events happen that somebody could be feeling good about or not feeling good about. And then they can try to create stories and then try to get, perpetrate those stories or get other people to believe their stories. Now, the, the, the more that your stories can kind of line up with quote unquote reality, the, the average reality everybody else is kind of experiencing. That's all I'm saying is that's a bit safer to do that than creating your own reality that is pretty far off from the reality everybody else is experiencing. It's going to be harder for you to connect with other people if your reality is that far off. So, you know, as, as far as, you know, being able to connect, being able to cooperate, 
the more that you can check your stories with the average reality everyone else is experiencing, I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that's helpful. That's a, 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 the trap. You know, you're avoiding that trap of just being so far off. You know, you can have mass delusions, of course, um, but at least in the time that those people were, you know, together thinking about it, maybe the world is flat. They're thinking, you know, the world is flat and that helps them all connect and it helps people stay in power or whatever. But in the long term, you know, maybe things get changed as, as the reality starts to become, you know, better understood. Uh, your next question, can you remind me of the next question? I apologize. No problem. I have another question, which is okay. even more like appropriate because I was hearing you speak about cooperation and it's wonderful. And I remember one of the biggest um, uh, fund managers in the world was asked this question and I would like to relay his answer because it's actually my observation as well, that mm -hmm. people who are smart actually are way too aware of risks. They're way too aware of their weaknesses and limitations. And therefore, they don't take much risk in life. And if they cooperate, it's within their comfort zone. They don't really go above and beyond. While people who are either too stupid to realize they're stupid, which is the Dunning-Kruger effect, or mm -hmm. they're delusional, those are the people who reach to the top through a Russian roulette situation where they keep on winning just by sheer good luck, but it increases their confidence and all that, which leads them to the top, which in many ways there is a selection uh, bias or a survivorship bias or whatever it is that the people who end up at the top are delusional in many ways and have big egos because they believe in themselves uh, in spite of any contradicting um, information coming through, as well as they're willing to take risks because, well, they believe in themselves in a delusional way. And therefore, delusional ego is really a source of getting to a lot of positions of power and decision-making. While 92%, you said, or whatever, the number of people who are nice and have a lot of oxytocin, and cooperate well those people don't break the mold they're not creative they don't become the next steve jobs with his like uh, gravity distortion field <laughs> and all that Ooh. stuff and therefore in many ways yes ego we should kill it and whatever but is it just sacrificing ego at the altar of the oxytocin lovers <laughs> while reality is telling us that delusional people and people with huge egos are ruling the world and therefore mm. in many ways it's a it could be interesting the thing that is leading them to success because really like mm -mm. if you are self-aware you're aware of your limitations you will not do something that is totally stupid which means you'll be risk averse well someone who just believes he's like a god on this earth because of his right. ego and his competitive you remember like i don't know whether you watched a documentary with Michael Jordan, he used to motivate himself with delusion. Like someone from the other team will look at him. He'll imagine that person was like said something bad about his mother or uh, told him you'll never win or whatever. And then he Ooh. says, that's all I needed. And he will have food, like he will destroy people's careers over things they didn't even do just to motivate himself to win wow. uh, out that's, of ego. <laughs> what is your... That's unfortunate. No, no, that's why it became even a meme. Like that's, yeah. that's all I needed if you want, because Ooh. he will do that. He will invent like some, something like a slight to his ego 
that will push him to become the best player in the world. Yeah. Well, I would say that there certainly are groups of people out there, uh, and I think we're talking about those kind of sociopaths or the narcissists that um, don't care about other people as much, don't care about the cooperation, but just care about themselves succeeding uh, at all costs, right? So there's certainly a percentage, but I think that there's even more people out there that are succeeding because of cooperation. I mean, to, to, um, to climb a ladder or a hierarchy in an organization, I think a book, the book, um, the book uh, Tribal Leadership even talks about this, where it's, there's almost like a glass ceiling. If people believe that you are looking out for their interests, the interests of the group, they want to exalt you, they want to promote you, they want to push you along. If they believe that you're looking out for themselves, well, then they don't want to do that. So you kind of, it's just harder, harder to go along. It's harder to get it high. So you, you know, go higher up this hierarchy, so to speak, or um, social hierarchies or whatever. So I, from my experience, that people can kind of get ahead in multiple ways. There's all kinds of strategies. There's some that work better than others and different contexts and whatever. Um, certainly, like you said, maybe some people are less risk. They're, they're you know less of a risk taker, so they're just not even get there. Statistically, there's going to be fewer people that are going to go there um, compared to like some people that are really driven and driven for personal gain. Um, but I really do think that there's just so many great examples of people out there that I don't I don't see as just being driven for personal gain. I think that they're literally being you know, exalted by the people around them that are like, this person's a good person. They're looking out for all of us and um, we want them to succeed because when they succeed, we all succeed. Thank you. When they succeed, we all succeed. Who determines that vision for the group? And it has been shown in many ways that whenever there is a commission deciding on anything, it's a compromise and a totally broken vision that yeah. ends up being created because it's not nobody really is happy with it, but everybody compromised, so nobody is satisfied. In a group where there is that cooperation, well, where does the vision come from? Especially that if you speak about people who are into oxytocin, each one will mm-hmm. delegate it or relegate the decision of the vision to the other person. Like you, you remember, I don't know whether in some movies or whatever, someone asks uh, their friends, oh, what do you eat? Uh, what do you want to eat tonight? They'll say whatever mm-hmm. you want. And then they'll right. be like, yeah, right. okay, but what do you want? Anything you want, I'll be happy with it. And everybody is just going back and forth saying whatever you want, whatever you want. Because mm-hmm. you mentioned, you began with this premise. You didn't say anybody, but you said the people with high oxytocin. Well, mm-hmm. those in particular will get satisfaction from serving the group. And therefore, they will not have the initiative. And where does that come from? Probably mm-hmm. ego. Mm-hmm. And I'm playing the devil's advocate. But mm-hmm. Tell me more. Sure. I think I heard a couple of questions there. One was... Um, so the, the, I think, what was the first question? Just I want to make sure I understand because you, you are really good at asking questions. I want to make sure I understand your question. No problem. Thank you. You're being very kind. You're stroking my ego. Good <laughs> But I said whenever there is a group, when there is cooperation, mm-hmm. and we yeah. are know that, you know, uh, commissions, if they oh. make a decision, it will yeah, yeah, be yeah. a broken think... compromise. But yeah. where would yeah. the initiative come from if everybody is oxytocin-filled? And therefore, <laughs> based on that, oxytocin is not the same as having like that drive for serotonin which is what drives you out of the comfort zone. Oxytocin is more about comfort, staying within that. Okay. I think I heard something about that. If, at first, it was something about um, cooperation and, and who decides uh, what the group's vision is. 
Uh, and just to that one real quick, to get back to that one, I think I heard, I think that, yes, you could have it more or less articulated in any group. Um, it could be that there's, you have a certain organization and the organization has either articulated or less articulated values, but ultimately it's the feeling that's in the mind of all the people that are, that are part of that organization. I mean, organization could be a country, it could be literally like a corporation, it could be a nonprofit, it could be really any, any collection of people. And so it's in, it, in, especially where there's maybe something at stake where they're trying to achieve something. Um, yeah, there it's, it's more, or it could be more loose. It could be more articulated. Uh, I think e either way can work, you know, how those things come to be articulated. Uh, yeah, that's a whole big topic, I guess. Uh, I've gone through those kinds of um, mission and vision and articulations before and all the pros and cons of trying to make everybody satisfied and try to get what are the goals of the organization and on and on and on. Um, this, this next, can you ask that next question again? Because you, there were two questions, two other questions there. There's a new one. And then there's the, the other one you asked before that. I apologize. Cause I can't, if I can't keep them all in my mind at the same time. No problem. I will ask questions one by one. Okay. And so you mentioned right now that it's in the heart of the people, the feeling for the vision, mm -hmm. etc. It mm -hmm. seems to me that is not really exactly how life works or, or as uh, uh, Henry David Thoreau said that people are living a life of quiet desperation and they die with their songs and their hearts, which is really unfortunate. But it seems to, or even if you read books like uh, True Believer, uh, where he it's the on the origins of mass movement, that actually people buying into a vision isn't really that way, that idealistic, uh, utopian way, but more that a lot of people are bored, they have no excitement in their lives, and therefore a big, bold vision is something that adds that excitement into their lives rather than something they feel in their hearts. Yeah, it's meaning. something that they need, otherwise they're feeling like emptiness, and therefore it doesn't originate from them because you cannot ask somebody to contribute what they don't have. If they're living a life of quiet desperation, they cannot, mm -hmm. you know, create the opposite. What I am saying, mm -hmm. okay, in this way, should we eliminate ego 100%? Is this the premise of the book or yeah. is it a premise of eliminating only ego traps, but then growing ego in other ways? Or how does it go? Because even mm. in spirituality or in Buddhism, th they will go in this way. They say, before you let go of ego, you should have an ego first that is strong enough, you know, that you have things to let go of. But if you, ha you don't have nothing, you have no reason to have like an ego about anything. You have no reason to think that you should look good. Then it's not the right time to be uh -huh. begin letting go of, of ego. Or I think, as Jack Welch uh, put it in this way, that a lot of people, they're like in, uh, uh, in, at university and they want to give to the world and all that, but their heart is empty. They have nothing to give. Build something first to give, and then you can let go of the ego afterwards. But tell me about this, because maybe sure. I'm assuming, and it's totally wrong, that your premise is to let go totally of ego, which should be absolutely a perfect and great premise to go, but then I'm thinking about practically how would it work in mm -hmm. a world yeah. where not, it's not, not really completely not not into that. That's or that the opposite of the, the message of the book. In fact, the message of the, the book is that we all don't understand how our egos are affecting us, and we're told by the world to you know look away from them or just suppress them or you know kill them. 
And that will, I think the result of that is often that ego controls us. So I, we, the, uh, the premise of the book is that if you can understand how ego works, how it came to be, what the benefits are of, the, of ego, but also how it's controlling us and how the, how the world around us is controlling us through our identities and through that programming, you can reprogram yourself. And especially with the help of your friends, because that can really, that can really you know, you know, accelerate your, the programming. So instead of killing the ego, it's better to understand it and use it for good. Thank you. How to use the ego for good? Mm. Yeah, so to use the ego for good, you could ask yourself very simply, are the things I'm going for in life, do those things benefit myself or do they benefit the greater good? Are they benefiting the greater group of people? You know, at least my friends or maybe even larger than that. You, know, you could even go up to society as a whole or, you know, the world in general. Um, there's various layers and shades and levels of, um, you know, cooperation and who are you, who's your we, right? You, you could include all kinds of different people in your we at any time. Usually the more that you have your basic needs satisfied and you believe that in the future your basic needs are sat, will be satisfied, the larger your kind of intuitive we seems to be. Thank you. And who determines that bigger good? I will ask, I'll tell you this, because in marketing, mm -hmm. one of the deepest premises or things that people need to open their eyes to is uh -huh. that people don't buy what they need. Huh. They buy what they want, which is often not at all what they need. Or yeah, yeah, like often you can tell people, well, you need um, delayed gratification. And they'll say, of uh -huh. course, of course. And then they go rushing to fast food and uh -huh. uh, Netflix, uh, like watching some reality TV uh -huh. or whatever. And so in marketing, they say like, uh, give them a fully nutritious hot dog or like mm -hmm. sell them what they want, but include in it whatever they need. So that it's like a Trojan horse where you give them the tasty, uh, shiny thing while within it, there is a lot of goodness. If yeah. you're working towards uh, the bigger good, whether stories you can look about them in religion or in mythology, it's an unwelcomed prophet that gets stoned and killed <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean and that's mm -hmm. more the reality than the idealistic if you told me yes let's go find like people um at that uh, yellow level of uh, awareness and uh, like we're all great people and we understand the red and the green and the blue and all those levels of uh, consciousness i will say yes i i agree with mm -hmm. you 100 but to uh, speak in a way about ego where we're dealing with so many people and mm -hmm. so many of them are at so many stages of awareness that there is no one like you cannot expect acceptance of the greater there's, good there's there, so nobody's gonna how, nobody's how going to agree it? on that no yeah nobody will agree on what a greater good is but i think that you could you know there there are probably what some examples that are more obviously less greater good or more greater good and some that are really hard to really figure out there's so many gray areas or maybe don't even involve kind of neutral or don't even involve greater anything or less anything um i think of the example the common example we have in you know when we work in organizations or companies with other people you could ask yourself does, does this decision i'm making um does this benefit all of the workers in the organization equally i mean is this kind of more egalitarian is this something that's benefiting management or just myself um, is this decision I'm making 
benefiting myself or the people, you know, management or something, but at the expense of other people who are working hard every day. Uh, you could, sometimes these decisions are, can be a little easier. I don't think there's any perfect, there's no perfect way to discover this. Everybody, like you said, and like we agreed earlier, everybody has a different perspective on the world. Um, but to, to the degree that you can be, be making decisions that you believe in your heart that you think are helping more people, uh, that that is you know, more cooperative. Again, there's, it's, it's, this is one of those really tricky and challenging things to determine. You know, a lot of people would say that uh, being more sustainable, having a more sustainable world, reducing global warming, you know, uh, climate change, all of that stuff is you know, more cooperative. Uh, we, should, we should be working towards that because that helps everybody in the world. Um, you know, there's some of these uh, concepts that more and more larger groups of people agree with. Not everybody does. And sometimes there's groups of people that don't agree with that. Uh, but you can certainly start to think uh, it, it when you start to think about these things. I think that it's easy to intuitively say, that, OK, this thing seems to be more cooperative and less. But you're not always going to be right on these things. And there's no like ultimate reality of and way to know for sure any of these things, uh, what the answers are here. So it's it's. Um, you know, there's some personal choice here and a personal. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, so right. if there is no ultimate reality, uh-huh. first, let's define in your, from your own perspective, what is the ego? And if there is no ultimate reality, what benefits can people expect from reining in and managing, or uh, I don't know, whatever the word that you prefer to use? related to ego. So what is ego and what are the benefits of not falling into ego traps? Because, well, there could be a lot of benefit by definition, because humans only do things that benefit them. Falling into the ego traps has some benefits. Right. So I like to say, I think that for me, um, ego traps are often short-term strategies instead of like longer term strategies that people just are not as aware of the benefits. But once they start to, to figure out what those benefits are, uh, then they start to, you know, get, they start to want to use these kind of long-term, um, these long-term strategies. Uh, I mean, I could, I could think of, you know, there's lots of different ego, you know, ego traps that, um, you know, sometimes people will just kind of react in their, their, the situation instead of kind of responding, instead of thinking about, okay, what's going on? How do I want to respond? Um, they're just kind of reacting whatever they're feeling at that moment. Um, they could be, you know, what I think one of the, op- the, op- the, one of the really big ones that I see in, in, um, in my life, and I've experienced this myself and lots of people I know have experienced this is, you know, optimizing for being right over the expense of connection. So I see that those are kind of often play off of each other. The more I'm trying to be right and assert my ego and assert, you know, try to look good or feel good about myself because I, I want to be more right or win or something, the less connected I am. And so that there's, you know, I'm losing out on that kind of long-term connection over just one moment of being right. You know, I think, I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of, there's plenty of that, but like put, you know, putting other people down to make your ego feel better. That's kind of, that's a, an ego trap. And wouldn't it be better if you could, you know, co- cooperate and help help each other evolve uh, instead of instead of just going straight to that, you know, I guess it's a short term strategy to make yourself your ego feel a little better, but it's not a great long term strategy for feeling connected and um, and uh, having a better life. So there's just a, you know, the, I think another another important one is just to recognize re- by 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 identifying as somebody who sees your ego as a feature and not a bug. 
I think that helps a lot too, because you're not just trying to look away from your ego and avoid it uh, and kill it. You're trying to work with it uh, because it's going to be with us for our life. And it's, um, it can be a great and powerful and beautiful thing and, and help us get our elder needs met. And, and, and if programmed properly, uh, it can help us get closer to a better life and the people we care about have a better life altogether. Or it can, um, you know, run our lives and create a lot of, you know, uh, havoc and, and pain. Thank you. And if I understood you correctly, because I'm trying to define ego, <clears throat> mm-hmm. it's like there is a book by, um, it's called I Mammal by uh, Loretta Graziano. I, it's about, I think she speaks there about something she calls junk status or something that humans use to get the neurochemicals in their brain, or especially serotonin, like you said, being right rather than connection and all that, is that there are wrong ways or hacks or shortcuts, like junk food, it's junk status, or ways to get the neurochemicals uh, to our brain, because otherwise the brain is not optimized it has been evolved for millions of years in order to push us to do more to have hedonistic adaptation Mm -hmm. to not allow us uh, to like it will push us through cortisol for us Mm -hmm. to get more status by any means necessary because as mammals evolved they couldn't save money they couldn't save Mm -hmm. anything the only way that increased survival is higher status because it means first you will be more inside the group and therefore you will be protected by the mm-hmm. lower status people around you as a shield from sure. anybody else you'll get food first before anybody else and therefore getting higher status is survival like it's the brain doesn't care all it cares about is uh anything you got accolades for as a little uh, boy or girl that it thinks okay yeah. this increases my status i want more of it always and forever and it, it will create deep grooves for it so is this that junk status which is the wrong or misguided ways that the brain is pushing humans to get serotonin oxytocin um, dopamine in ways that don't serve them is that the ego or what is the ego I think there's a lot, probably a lot of correlation there. Uh, absolutely. And so to get back to this thing, what is the ego? I think you can define it in a few different ways. If you go to an academic and you look at like, you look at the amygdala and you think, okay, there's all of these, the amygdala has these different um, inputs, whether it's, you know, food, air, shelter, water, the basic needs. And if there's one of these basic needs is not doing well, you're going to get a pain signal. For instance, if you're not, um, I guess, Matthew Lieberman at UCLA said, showed that with fMRI, if you um, don't have enough uh, social connection, you start to get a pain signal and then you can you take ibuprofen and that like lowers the signal. So the way I imagine it is you have the amygdala, you have all of these different inputs for all of your basic needs. And if your basic needs or any of your basic needs are not being satisfied, like you don't have enough air at this moment, you're going to get a strong signal saying, ah, something's wrong, so- solve this problem. And, you know, some of those are really straightforward. Do I have the food? Do I not? Um, but some of them are more complex, whereas you get up to, you know, you know human identity, self-worth, um, you know, self-esteem, then you can be programmed by the world around you to, oh, hey, buy this fragrance and you'll be loved. 
um, you know, here's here's a solution for your whatever, fill in the blank. And that's what, you know, modern marketing, I think, tries to do is to say the only way you can solve your ego or identity problem or that, that pain uh, from lack of human connection or lack of self-esteem is to buy this product. And that's, you know, the world kind of programming us uh, instead of us actively understanding what how we want to be programmed and programming ourselves and with the help of our friends. So back to, the, again, the definition of ego, you can have a more kind of medical definition where it's the pain in the amygdala. You could use, you could, you could, in a lot of like common, common vernacular, people, some people will say that the ego is more self-esteem related, that I want my self-esteem to feel better. And I, you know, at, at what cost, at, and, and that usually it, it, it's at the cost of others. That's how ego tends to be thought of. Therefore, the, you know, the natural thing, the natural answer in, any, you know, most of life is if something's bad, avoid it, just go away from it. But the problem with ego is it follows us around every second of our life. And it's not something we can just turn off very easily. Um, and I don't know if we'd even want to. I think that imagine a world where everybody, everyone was born and they didn't care about what other people thought of them. I don't think we would have modern society. The, the anxiety that comes from people worrying about what other people are thinking and becoming a little bit more cooperative because they want to make sure that other people see them in a good light and that they're, you know, and, and, and vice versa. Um, uh, is a great thing. It keeps society together. It keeps people together. It keeps so- social stuff working. Uh, imagine the opposite where everybody is born and they don't care about what other people think and they have to spend a lifetime trying to learn that, to do that logically I, or, or try to build it in biologically. I just don't think that would be a good world. I'd rather everybody spend a lifetime trying to um, you know, overcome that, that, that uh, pain. Thank you. And to ask you about this, you said the world is programming us, and that is yeah. a perspective. Mm-hmm. But there is, for example, a book which is called Marketing to the Brain, who Ooh. argues that actually Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs isn't even correct. And right. that two things. One, the world isn't programming us, but companies who try to be nice and not use what you call like programming the ego or linking to ego, they fail and therefore they're giving people what they want and it's actually just a reflection of the human desires that weren't fulfilled before. And if you go into history, to kings who could live like consumers now, well, Mm -hmm. they lived in, in that way anyway and nobody was marketing or selling to them in any other way. But the deeper thing, they argue that no, self-actualization, or they defined it in a way where being all you can be is actually the, the first and deepest human need, but in a way where people would die and lose everything for a good reputation or for their name to live on forever or whatever. And they argued that, well, if people who are willing to die, which is like sacrificing all the needs just for to be recognized by others or uh, for others to remember their name as someone great or dying for a cause or for a value that is self-transcendent, that means that is not really the low, like the highest thing because you will lose shelter, you will lose family, you will lose everything for self-transcendence or self 
actualization. And therefore, according to them, actually, you should flip it on its head, <laughs> the pyramid of needs, uh, were, uh, and it was marketing to the brain. And therefore, they say, well, to market to people, market to self-transcendence first, and then take care of anything because someone could be uh, like dying from hunger or whatever, yeah. but they can still fight for their country or for mm-hmm. something bigger than themselves, and they're right. willing to die for it. I, what yeah, are your but, thoughts about this? Lots of thoughts on that. The biggest thought is that Maslow's hierarchy doesn't make any. I don't doesn't make much sense to me as a hierarchy. It's more like again giving back to the the pain signals into the amygdala. These things could all be coming and not. They're certainly not coming in a hierarchy, but they would be different amounts of pain. Perhaps the signals would be of different intensities, different people, different intensities, different biologies, of course. But if you don't have air right now, that one's going to be really loud. And if you don't have, you know, human connection, where one person, they might not really, that might not affect them as much based on their biology, somebody else, that might be really a powerful pain. So I see it as all of these things, all anything that could be quote unquote a need um, could be, you know, creating a pain signal into this, into your amygdala. And if you don't have it satisfied, you're going to um, be distracted. You can't really self-actualize and um, you figure out right now that I don't have my, you know, all of, now that I have all of my needs met, well, now what do I want to do with my time? I see self-actualization as that. I've got all my needs met. I don't have anything screaming at me uh, saying, solve this problem. Now, what do I do with my time? How would I like to live my life? Or how do I like to explore the world or how, whatever, however, whatever you want to do, really? Uh, so I don't see it as a hierarchy. I don't necessarily see it as in, to, to be able to invert it. I think there's infinite number of examples and uh, situations you could come up with, which you would you know, disprove a hierarchy, of course, or even an inversion. I think they're all just signals and they all can um, influence us in different ways and each person's different. So they're going to have different, uh, different uh, experiences. Thank you. So is that freedom from the pains and the pain signals? Is that also so. freedom from the ego or how is that related to the ego? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely some, there's, I would say so. You could definitely define it like that. You could say when you have all of your basic needs met and you don't have these pain signals into your amygdala, you are free from your ego. Now that's if you want to have a lot, much larger, more, maybe more medical definition of what ego is, where it's encompassing all basic needs. But if you don't do that, and it's more about self-esteem and self, you know, self-image and, and things like that, then maybe it's you know more restricted. There's a more restricted definition. And again, you can still you know uh, get you know solve that kind of pain problem, but it's still missing the piece, which is kind of the point of the book, is that if your ego is what is driving you so strongly to do things in life, why not program it toward the directions? that you'd like to go that are more cooperative and help you know, the world. Thank you. Sometimes, okay, um, I will give a devil's advocate answer. And I heard it actually from uh, David Deida, who wrote The Way of the Superior Man, etc. He said, actually, uh, to program the ego for cooperation, people will not value that until they satisfy all their needs and then they get the existential crisis about that because they otherwise they'll be always thinking what if you know what i mean Hmm. which means let's say someone who is lower and it's not okay they don't have all their needs met and they Mm -hmm. in their head because their amygdala is sending pains that something is missing their head they understand okay cooperation is the end goal well they cannot be ready 
until it's it's like um, Fight Club, where only when you lose everything that you're free uh, to to be wh who you are or to be anything. I think Do you know what I mean? Path. Yes, I think that's one path. Absolutely, and that can be a real powerful path that you feel like you've got first principles behind you and you understand why you're cooperating. And absolutely, that's a, a great way to get to, uh, you know, uh, putting cooperation first or, you know, making sure that it's, it's one of the, the, you know, our core goals. But not everybody follows that path, I think. I mean, people get there in all kinds of different ways. It could be trial and error. It could be, you know, looking out for themselves only and then seeing the, the destruction it causes. It could be that Somebody is literally just programmed by their parents to become, you know, somebody who's more cooperative. Uh, I know my wife, is, she, she's from Scandinavia. And she talks about how uh, it's just, it's really interesting how everybody trusts each other there. But also there's just huge pressure to do things right and to cooperate. And if you don't, that, you know, you'll get some negative, you'll get some negative, um, I don't know, social pressure, bad looks, you know, weird to tonality in people's responses and it's just interesting to hear her talk about this, um, that, that, you know, there's all different ways to get to cooperation for sure. Um, but I would rather have people uh, going, you know, either program for that, going toward cooperation than everybody, every person for themselves. I think that you take a look at game theory, you know, and, and when you can generally, when you have more, when you have more cooperation, more people get more, fewer defectors, more cooperators equals a better world uh, for more people. That's what I've seen time and time again in my life. And, Thank you. And research. So do you think the Scandinavian model of somewhat like putting pressure to get to cooperation is, is okay? I, I don't mean, know. I've just asked. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, I, but it's, then I it, it tends to be, yes, I, I it tends to me that it's a Machiavellian thing. No, you know, that the ends justify the mean, that the greater good, it's utilitarian. <laughs> That as long as we yeah. get to the greater good, then the I cogs th in, <laughs> in the think, wheel. I think no. I'm okay with that as long as um, personal, you know, the opportunity for somebody to be different and express themselves differently is and, and not have to conform. Um, I, I think that I'm a little bit more okay with that concept. But if it, it, if it includes, uh, if that social pressure includes conformity and not, you know, have the, the ability to express yourself in unique ways um, that are still cooperative that's where I start to have a problem with it. Thank you. My thing, and please answer how this will work. It seems to me, and maybe this is like the biggest devil advocate question, that such a system where everybody's cooperating, well, it's everybody reacting to each other. It will need a benevolent dictator who will set things into motion. Otherwise, it will be just like things that are not it needs a container for the water you know if, if we said that water is people cooperating together well the thing is cooperation itself is not initiative because oh. it's the opposite it's exactly the opposite like creation is the opposite okay okay if we think about mm -hmm. it by uh, in a Jungian way cooperation is uh, the um, what he called the feminine static, while um, initiative or like a breaking out of the mold is the uh, penetrative masculine um, dynamic. And therefore, for if everybody was two things, one, if you had cooperation all throughout, by the law of polarity, it will force 
individuality and people breaking out of the mold and becoming rebels by definition yeah. that's like mm -hmm. the yeah. it's like the matrix you know like yeah. they created the perfect system but they understand there will need to be anomalies which is that cooperation a system full of cooperation will create dissent and rebel like mm -hmm. attitudes by itself it's just the inevitable yeah yeah i, I while, think, I while, think, I think as they say like, a fool no, no uh, yes uh, or the opposite if everybody's too selfish it's like a fool who persists in his foolishness becomes mm -hmm. wise well if everybody is individualistic it will turn back and become a lot more cooperative for whatever reasons so i'm just yeah. asking because yes you said there needs to be a bigger answer mm -hmm. about this like who will decide the direction of the place how to deal with people who will actually refuse. They will say, I will not cooperate mm -hmm. just because I don't want to. Things mm -hmm. like that. How would such a system deal with it? Well, I think that there's, I think the great thing about the world is there are just a lot of systems out there, right? And it's not like, I think if this was the case in one particular system, then maybe you, would, you, you could, maybe you could get some of this polarity or people refusing or rebelling. Absolutely. Maybe the family unit is like that. I don't know. Um, but I, I really think that it doesn't have to be so uh, polarized. Um, I don't think many systems would be like that. There's just so many different systems out there, different people trying to solve different problems, uh, different systems and different groups of people that exist for very different reasons. And of course, in a, in a complex world, we'll inevitably run into problems. Hopefully, we'll continue to run into problems forever so we have something to do in this world and everything's not perfect and at least it's interesting. Um, you know, uh, but I, I think that, that, um, that you... That you the cooperation and you know some people fought, quote unquote falling in line and I, I don't think that that has to say that everybody needs to be the same. I mean, there's a, I think that cooperation is one thing, but people can still have a lot of diversity. Um, you don't have to have conformity uh, to have cooperation. I think Burning Man is a great example of that. You have really everybody radically doing things in very very different ways and having different ideas, and of course they run into any number of disagreements, but it's how they decide to, to cooperate and understand each other. I think that really matters and keeps bringing people back together. Um, that's kind of a radical experiment. It's kind of interesting to look toward, but I think the easy answer is when you try to get to cooperation, you can say, well, just everybody just do things the same and think the same, and then we'll get there. But I don't think that's a good answer either. You know, I think that that reduces resilience, right? It reduces the a diversity in which you have to solve these complex problems and the problems just keep coming. So um, I think you want to maintain diversity and cooperation simultaneously. Thank you. And how do you create ownership in order for cooperation to be actually something that works? Because I just interviewed just before now, John Werner, who is the CEO of Koya, and he used to be an executive at Adidas. And he said that when he was in such big companies, uh, he had the vision for something that he was like the ideation guy and like the planning and people will mm -hmm. execute. But if he did not follow up, follow through, stay in charge, people mm -hmm. will not do anything. They will do whatever their projects that they came up with, they originated and therefore they had the ownership for. And he said that's one of the lessons he learned that if he created the plans for the thing, even if he explained how it will radically transform the world and the solutions it will solve. 
if he didn't like use carrot and stick or stay behind those people until they implemented, nobody will do anything because they will come up with their own ideas and feel passionate about them <laughs> and following through. And therefore, you know, like, I don't know, the, the 12 week year, which is one of my favorite books. And uh, the authors are, are, are writing a book about the, the real definition of accountability. And they say it's not consequences it's ownership so don't tell people oh there will be negative consequences because you will get the lowest level of performance possible while if people own the results then they will go above and beyond and that uh, why you will find anyhow so in a cooperative system how is ownership created through intrinsic motivation, because we know that's the only thing that actually works. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would be like communist Russia, where people are working like everybody's trying not to work (laughs) because they will get the same anyway, and they're forced to do that labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. And I think you're probably setting this up a little bit for uh, a little bit talk about Upstock, the, the worker equity as a service company that we're building right now. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, yes, you get... feel free to speak about Upstart yeah. now as well. Yeah. So the, the question is, I think, is how do you get people to really want to do their best work of their life? Or are they thinking about the problems of the company in the shower and the way to work, if that exists anymore? Like in bed at night, you know, how can we all cooperate together to create great outcomes? If everyone will get the same, like you said, maybe the incentive is just not there. Um, and if I'm not really an owner, it's just, it's just kind of happening to me. It's just time for money. Well, maybe it's just a job. Why should I spend any time trying to enhance it or improve it? But if I know that I, if the company does well, that I will do well, meaning that if the company is successful and maybe has is sells or is, has some profits that it shares, and I will get my fair share, that we will all get our fair share. Well, a couple things happen there. A, um, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I'm aligned with the out long-term benefits, and I can say, well, I would I would get more if I can do more. If we can do more together, I could get more. But I think even more important than that is the task identity, I think is what they call it in HR nomenclature or something where you can identify with the the task that you're doing, the impact that it has in the world, and then also the impact that it has for the people that you care about. Um, And so that's where where when you give ownership of a company when you and people can believe in the ownership not just well there's these complex legal documents i can't really understand them i signed them i put them in a journal forget about them not that kind of old school ownership but more you know the direction where modern equity is heading where you can see that you will own it you you own it and you can see that you're owning more of it over time commensurate in a fair way with how much effort you're putting in or time uh, and what kind of results you're bringing for the organization that's I think that is um, that's like the whole that's like the whole new world of uh, of ownership, and that is where when you have your identity connected to the organization, to the company, and then also you know that it's going to be fair, and you're not going to be a fool later if you know management runs off with millions of dollars and you're just left there with you know with no job or something. That would be you know sad. That would be unfortunate. So we're here. What Upstock is doing is we're trying to democratize ownership, make it so that anyone anywhere can share ownership in their companies with anyone from around the world. And we like to say the solar system and beyond. We want to make ownership not something that's so complex that only you know company only one percent of companies can afford the, the the cash or the complexity to do this. We want everybody from any size company. Starting off, so people don't need napkin and handshake agreements anymore. They can have real legal documents and ownership all the way up through, you know, really any size companies. And it's really about visualization. Can people see 
and intuitively understand their, the ownership they're, that they're being offered and do they feel inspired to give, give it their best? So that's our stock. I agree with you 100%. And if people want to learn more about Upstock, what is mm-hmm. the best place or website or anything to do that? As well as tell me a bit more about writing your book. When do you expect it to be published? In which cool. stages is it? And how is the process of writing it with your wife? Which I think you mentioned that. So mm-hmm. is it bringing you both closer together or leading to some arguments, not like serious ones, but like discovering more about each other. Tell me more. Oh my God. Okay. So real quick, Upstock is upstock.io, upstock.io. Yeah. And we we, uh, just raised a good round. So we're there and bringing on, you know, hundreds of companies. So happy to uh, help chat with anybody who wants to chat about equity. But over to the book again, um, we are finishing it up. We are in 300 pages or so. It's We're just going to two different editors right now. We're, they're advising us that we should go through a literary agent and go to publishers. So we're looking at that. Um, yes, it's the the book has actually brought us closer together. And I think it's because of a couple of, couple of reasons. One is, well, in the past when I've worked with a, my significant other on a project, it's been, it could be challenging. Like if you're, you know, you, you, you're working all day on a project and then you come home or something, you're, and now, you, now you have a relationship together. They could just be like too much time together and 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 um, just not give you some a break to go off and have other experiences and come back and then you know share those experiences together and and makes sometimes can make a relationship more sustainable. But the nature of the topic that we're tackling has given us tools in which to deal with these challenges as they've come up. You know, people spend you know a couple of years straight together because you know quarantine and and all of that stuff and also travels. Um, I would say that we're doing, we've, we've really done pretty well. Sure. Everybody has their challenges. Um, but those challenges have been mostly, uh, short lived and, 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 uh, handled or talked about or continually talked about, you know, over and over. And, um, and with some of these tools, I think it's really helped us uh, in our relationships and that we've been sharing these tools with some other friends that have had some challenges and it seems to have helped them as well. So we're still testing still early days for ego hacking, uh, but if people want to find out more information about ego hacking, go to egohackers.com. You can sign up to become an ego hacker or just keep in touch. And um, we'll have uh, early versions of the book and some blog posts available. Ultimately, it's going to be a platform, a social network where ego hackers can share their best ego hacks and learn from each other. Thank you so much. And I hope your next book will be a relationship ego hack book because you probably are accumulating some methods and ways to do that. Casey, it was a privilege, an honor, a blessed time. And I thank you for every minute. And I thank you again. And I wish you a great day. Thank you, Abdulaziz. And I appreciate all of your insightful questions and your devil advocateness. Uh, just what a fun, fun experience. And I look forward to more, uh, more conversations in the future with you. Thanks so much.